Okay, so how does someone who despised himself for most of his life go from that to absolutely loving himself and his life and creating music that makes millions of people smile? That's the journey my guest, Axel Mansour, has been on. A singer-songwriter and self-described third culture kid, he's been known for leveraging technology to build community and intimacy with his music. And his songs have taken him from a daytime Emmy nomination to collaborations with some of the biggest brands in the world, Spotify's Viral 50 chart, and even to your television screen as he pitched a song to her on NBC's Songland. And Axel's debut EP, I Hadn't Ever Loved Myself, actually just dropped and is quickly climbing the charts. And interestingly, until a few days ago, his image was the icon for the massively viral Clubhouse social audio app appearing on the screens of tens of millions of phones. And he's also the creator of the app's popular Lullaby Club, which is this nightly musical experience where your favorite artists sing you and the rest of the world to sleep. But there's also this deceptively beautiful and creative ulterior motive which is to help artists get discovered, build careers, expand their communities, and even disrupt the entire industry model. In this conversation, we explore the idea of being a third culture kid, a phrase that I have heard more and more, and how literally living with a foot in three worlds led to this seemingly contradictory ability to fit in and make people like him while also being brutally bullied and deepening into a place of self-hatred that really tore apart his sense of self and belonging and expression. And we talk about how music, along with a series of powerful inciting incidents, turned his world upside down and became a source of joy and joyful expression and creativity and, to his surprise, eventually even profound self-love. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I've heard you describe yourself using this word a number of different times, or two words actually, or three words actually, third culture kid. And it's funny because Ah. that actually, yeah, that first popped onto my radar not too long ago. We had Connie Lim, whose artist name is Milk, 
um, mm. on the show a little while back. And she used that same phrase. Her, her parents were first generation in the U.S. She grew up in L.A. Mm. And she described herself as a third culture kid where it's sort of like she had to constantly navigate the culture of her parents, the culture of L.A. And she felt like she was not really part of either. And I'm curious when you use that word, what does it mean to you? I mean, you basically just described it. <laughs> it's straddling identities. And identity is, you can attach it to geography, you can attach it to culture, you can attach it to a bunch of different things. But for me, it really brings up this visceral scene of whenever I meet somebody and they go, where are you from? And the real answer that I have is, well, how long do you have? <laughs> you know, like, how much time do you got? Because we can really go into that. Like, what does that mean? You know, do you want to know the places that I grew up in? Do you want to know the culture that I relate to? Do you want to know why I look like a brown person and sound like a white person? Like, what do you really want to know when you ask that question? Where are you from? And it brings up like third culture kid as a phrase brings up, yeah, just a lot of this idea of straddling and everything that comes with that. It's a very loaded word in a way because it, it reminds me a lot of my childhood, obviously. And I had, I had a tough childhood. I didn't have an easy childhood. But as I've grown older, it's also, as I've been able to look back on it and understand what it did for me as an, you know, as an adult, the sort of like superpowers that it gave me, I'm also really grateful for it. So I have this kind of love-hate relationship with being a third culture kid. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about those early years that shaped you, you know, because, you know, for you, it's sort of like the, the straddling, it's on a, a number of different levels. You know, it's, you have lived in so many different places because your dad, when you were younger, especially like economist for the World Bank. So sort of like you have these tours, you know, it's like every two to three years, it's like, okay, it's next country, next country, next country. Which on the one hand, you know, you might look at it and say, well, what a, a stunning experience to be able to like drop into all these different cultures and learn them. But on the other hand, you know, it can also be just massively disorienting because every, yeah. I mean, on so many levels, and I'm curious whether you felt like you were sort of like dancing between both of those all the time. Well, I feel like we, we look at that as adults, right? But when you think about it from the perspective of a kid, like you can't appreciate cultures. Like you're just trying, like you're trying to get a sense of what is life? Like, what am I, what, what is all of this, you know? And it's only when you start to have a stable sense of things that switching them up actually gives you a deeper appreciation of them, at least for me. Whereas when you're a kid, it's not just moving countries. It's not just moving cultures. It's basically ending a life and beginning a new life. And Everything that comes with all that, you know, when I say ending a life, you know, it's like there's grief and there's loss and there's pain. And then there's this rebirth, right? With the new place where you can build a new identity. You can be somebody totally different. No one knows you anymore. You know, you can be whoever you want to be. And being sort of thrust into that as a kid and also just having the, you know, when you, when you, whatever you grow up with, you assume is just normal right? Until you realize that it's not. I, again, like it, as a kid, I, do, I don't think it's, you'd have to be 
I would be kind of worried about a kid that really was able to appreciate all the cultures that they grew up in. Because <laughs> it'd be like, that's, I mean, that's, that'd be incredible, but it'd also be like, how, how, you know, you don't even have like a standard. Yeah. I mean, when you're, when you move, when you kind of live that way for so many years, especially when you're younger, um, you know, you describe this process of, you know, there's grief, there's loss. It's essentially, it's like, there's a death and then a rebirth. And then two to three years later, another death and then a rebirth. And on part, I would imagine it's an identity level, but it's also a circumstance level because you're during that window, that two to three year window. I mean, as a young kid, especially all you want to do is kind of like fit in. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think what it does on a psychological level is it teaches you that you are at the whim of the world. You know, at least that's what it taught me. It's like, you know, there's this idea of like your, your low side of control, right? Like how much control do you happen to life or does life happen to you? And I think because of the way that I grew up, it was very much like, oh, like I'm just at the whim of the winds of change. You know, I don't really have any control over where my life goes or who or what is in my life and for how long it is. So I just have to learn how to be incredibly adaptable and just sort of take the path of least resistance because I know that things are, I know that nothing is permanent. You know, there's this, you grow up with this sense of impermanence, which again, in some ways, like if, if you look at the long tail of that, you know, as an adult, it's kind of beautiful because you're like, yeah, that is the way of the world, you know, but you're also thrust into that as a kid. You know, you don't have the emotional resources. You don't have the emotional support to like come to that realization in a sort of, I don't know, I guess a gentler way. And maybe there is no gentle way, but like, that's a pretty brutal realization to have at like eight years old. Right. And then again at 11 and then again at 13 and then again at 15, like it's a lot to go through and it ages you really, really fast. That's one thing that I have noticed amongst third culture kids in general. It's like, even if you meet a third culture kid who's 16, 17, they'll probably have the maturity of, you know, a 28 to 30 year old, at least your average 28 to 30 year old who's like lived in one place their whole life. Because it, again, with that death and rebirth, like you learn things that most people either don't have the opportunity to learn from moving or you know, it takes them a while before they get to where enough changes in their life drastically that they have to go through that themselves. Yeah. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it occurs to me also that, you know, you, you could probably have one or two responses. One is to say, okay, so I'm not even going to invest in relationships because I know, right. <laughs> you know like the, the, the stronger my relationships are, the more I'm going to suffer when you know, like, when we have to go through that process or like the exact opposite, which is I'm just going to go all in. Cause like, I don't, I don't have time to do the dance of slowly finding friends. Like we need to just drop in and stay as deep as we can, because I know this is going to end. I'm curious where you sort of like fell in that spectrum. <laughs> Absolutely landed on the, on the, the latter side of that <laughs> for sure. And I think in a way, you know, again, like I say, when you look at the long tail, I do deeply appreciate it because I'd say that's one of my superpowers is the ability to meet somebody and instantly, you know, kind of be able to make them feel like I've known them forever um, or that we've always been friends. You know, I, I know how to, how to meet people. I know how to talk to people and I know how to break into social circles. 
because I had to, that was my way of coping. That was my coping mechanism. That was my survival mechanism. But there are, I have met third culture kids who have gone the other way, you know, who just retreat within, into themselves and become very introverted. And, you know, I'm sure it has to do with temperament and, you know, nature nurture stuff, right? It's, it's both. I do also find, though, that a lot of third culture kids tend to have qualities of both. Like, even if they're an introvert, they're the most social introvert you'll ever meet. And even if they are extroverted, they will have, like for me, I'm, I'm pretty extroverted. I get energy from being around people. But even so, there are these moments where I will just need to withdraw and need to like go into my little shell, like my little hermit crab thing. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very weird. You, it's, it's both, honestly. And that's part of that flexibility. That's part of that adaptability that just comes with dancing across these lines constantly. Yeah. There's like a social agility that builds over time. Um, but you use some really interesting language. You said, you know, like I, I have learned how to essentially make anyone feel like we've known each other for our whole lives in a matter of minutes. You didn't say I have the ability to like know someone else and have them know me. You said, I have the ability to make them feel like that. Which mm. also suggests that there's a shield that kind of goes up immediately. It's like, okay, so there's a certain, like you step into a new thing and is it about dropping deep into the relationship or is it about creating a sense of ease so you can navigate it like as quickly as possible, even though that might not be the real you showing up? Oh, that's, that's the real shit, man. I love that you pointed that out. Um, the reality is, yeah, I... I've had to develop a different understanding of what vulnerability is for me because of that. You know, for most people, sharing the details of your life is this really vulnerable act. And for me, whether it's because I'm an artist and, you know, a public figure or whatnot, that, is, that doesn't feel very vulnerable for me. Connecting with somebody deeply doesn't feel very vulnerable for me. It is this sort of practice thing that I'm, I'm good at it and I enjoy it. It's, it's not that it comes from an ingenuine place, but it doesn't take the same level of vulnerability that it might take somebody else because I'm so practiced at it. That's sort of the difference between when you um, sort of recite a story or even recite music, you know, when you're just playing notes on a page versus when you're really in the emotion of the story. You're really re-experiencing the story as you tell it. And very often when I'm sharing vulnerable details about my life to connect with somebody, it's more just me recounting because I've done it so many times. It's more rare for me to, en to enter a situation of like true vulnerability when I'm meeting somebody just because they tend not to ask the right questions. You know, like the question you just asked right now, that's like a way more vulnerable question than I've answered in most interviews, <laughs> which is why I really like it. But maybe I'm just an intimacy addict. <laughs> maybe that's yeah, my thing. But I mean, I brought, you know, I brought it up in part because you know, part of what you're describing is, um, is code switching, right? Is this, yeah. you know, you, you gain the ability to really drop into a new environment and you're like, okay, let me read the room. Let me read the dynamic. 
and let me step into a certain identity way of, of conversation. And you know, like, and I know that, you know, like the process of making people feel like comfortable, which then makes me feel comfortable is mutual progressive, you know, vulnerability. That's how it works. It's like a, it's like a math formula, but like you said, you know, my curiosity is when you've had so much more practice at that from a young age and, and not always in a comfortable way, you know, like it's, there's come a lot of pain and a lot of angst, and a lot of suffering along the way, right. but like, like, do you get to that point where it's sort of like, okay, you have the act of progressive vulnerability, which right. you know will get, you know, like, I, if I do X, it'll get me Y. Like, we all feel better about it. Yeah. But underneath it the whole time, you know, you kind of know, like, there's a deeper self that nobody here really knows. And I really wish they did, but I'm not willing to go there because that's where it gets scary. That's where the vulnerability lies which you're helping me remember, <laughs> you're helping me realize again and again. Um, for me, true vulnerability comes not from code switching, but from actually resolving to not code switch, from digging into who I am and instead of conforming to whatever I think the situation is and, you know, I have, I think I am very intuitive and, and that I can read a room very quickly and just see what's going on and know how to sort of shift myself into that. The more work I've done to learn to love myself, the more I'm able to kind of just be consistently myself, no matter what the situation is. And I'd say that's probably been the biggest shift. And that is also, those are the most vulnerable moments. Like when I walk into a room where I meet somebody and I'm like, I have this instinct of like, I know who I need to be to please this person. And then making the conscious choice to not do that. Like that is, that's where my vulnerability, I think, lies a lot of the time. Cause it's like, oh shit, this is, I'm not just going to uh, make this easy for, for you. It's like making it easy for them and making them feel comfortable is, is always the like instinctive goal. But then pulling back from that and being like, nah, fuck that. <laughs> I'm just going to do like whatever I want to do and say whatever I want to say and not worry about how they're going to feel and how they're going to perceive me. That's a lot more vulnerable for me because then I don't have control. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense. And it's interesting also because, you know, part of what you're describing is this tension between the artist and the person who wants to to create ease you know mm -hmm. and and on the one hand you know you 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 have this ability you you're you're your typical artist you know like part of what tends to come along that package is a certain ability of sight that other people may not have or if they just haven't cultivated the practice or the skill of it but also a certain amount of empathy mm -hmm. um and you know on the one hand that gives you the ability to, to turn that into fuel to create things that shift paradigms. You know, you can make taste, you can change the way people see the world, you can speak to people beyond the shields and, and allow them to feel. But on the other hand, it pulls you out of that role of comfort maker because the role of an artist is effectively to not only do the creative it's like act, the discomfort to maker. On, to see discomfort, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's how... That that is where a lot of, I mean, growth and discomfort are hand in hand, right? You can't really have growth without some level of discomfort. That is at least my philosophy. I, I, I yeah. haven't seen true growth without discomfort. 
I don't think there's a good example of it. Yeah, I think a lot of us wish there was, but it's <laughs> yeah. kind of hard to come by. Yeah. The other thing that um, is kind of interesting, the way you've described yourself, have you ever heard the phrase indigo kids? No, go on. There's this sort of like thing, um, a term called indigo kids that came about, um, I want to say in the 70s, and it describes a set of traits in kids Things like, you know, at, at the earliest of age, you, you feel some sort of spiritual sensibility. You might not cause it faith. Like you kind of know there's a reason that you're here. You have like a really strong sense of intuition. You tend to really question any rules, any constraints, um, any authority, um, <laughs> tend to be hyper-creative and driven towards creating chains and also can really drop into emotion and suffering and pain and um, feel lost. And there seems to be a lot of crossover in the the people that I've met that raise their hand and say, I'm a third culture kid. Mm. Um, I see so many of those same traits as what's described as an indigo kid in that. Wow. I mean, that's really interesting for a few reasons. Number one being that I have this very strong affinity to indigo as a color. <laughs> Um, very often when I visualize my own music, I don't know. I, it's not even like on purpose and I'm, it's not that I have synesthesia, but a lot of my songs give me the color purple or like they give me like the, like an indigo color. It's not quite, it's not purple, right? It's this kind of bluish purplish, um, hue kind of thing. But it's it's very present in a lot of um, a lot of my music, even when I don't mean it to be. <laughs> like there are some times where I'm like, ah, I wish it was a different color. Like I'm not trying to make an indigo song right now. I'm not trying to do that, and yet it ends up happening a lot. So I've never heard that term. So that's just very interesting for some weird reason. The second being that as you were describing that, I was like, oh, you're describing me. <laughs> like you're you're. you're I, I definitely identify strongly with that. And the question it brings up for me is, is there some sort of, you know, through line in terms of cultures or uh, the, the way that these indigo kids were brought up? Like, is there a through line that connects them? Or is, is it sort of this idea of just these random individuals that identify with these traits? Yeah, I, I think it's been a fascination of mine. I, I heard first heard the term maybe five, six years ago. Somebody was describing themselves as that to me. And I was like, what is that? Um, wow. And I don't know a ton about it, but from what I understand, it's more about- um, It's taken everything in me to not just Google it right now. <laughs> yeah, right. It's like, it's like, stop the recording. We must Google. <laughs> you know, it's something that's more sort of like, it's almost like a priority imprint, a priority imprint. Like, you know, it's kind of there. And, you know, your upbringing may, may affect it, but it, it is really interesting um, because there are a whole certain set of traits that people tend to identify with indigo kids and then also experiences in the world and behaviors and outcomes, which often make for a really rough childhood um, because you're just massively othered nonstop. But then it also often becomes the source of profound impact and creativity and expression in, in adult life. Right. Right. I mean... It tends to be that if you look at the biographies of great leaders in the world, most of them had pretty rough childhoods. <laughs> like, 
you don't get a lot of like world leaders that like grew up in Beverly Hills. You get a lot of like upper management, you know, people that make like a great amount of money, but they're not necessarily making impact, right? Is there's a difference between being successful and making impact. And I feel like generally you have to go through shitty experiences. That that has to be a part of who you are because that will make you want to change the world to be a better place. Whereas if you grew up with the world being a pretty good place, like what is there to change? Yeah. I know for, for you, you know, beyond sort of like the death and rebirth that we've talked about, like each place also leads to just a massive amount of othering, which sometimes rises to the level of bullying, physical abuse. Um, so by the time that you hit your mid-teens, you kind of hate yourself, um, which you've spoken about. Kind of, not kind of, very much. I, I very intentionally hate myself, consciously, very loudly. Uh, tell me more about that. I mean, at this point, I've spent more of my life hating myself than loving myself. So it doesn't feel very long ago, you know? The period of my life where I can say, I love myself truly, and I, that's not just uh, lip service, and it's not um, aspirational, but is reality, I'd say that's really probably only been a year and a half, maybe two years. You know, I'm 28, say for... 25, 26 years, I, I've hated myself. And I mean, it's a way, it's quite literally, it was my way of life. It colors everything that you do. It is a defining part of your existence because you, it, it is the lens through which you experience life um, because it's your relationship with yourself. And life was toxic, you know? There's this barrier, there's this, there's this void, there's that hole in your heart that you try to fill with all of these things. Um, sometimes it's drugs, sometimes it's friendship, sometimes it's sex, sometimes it's achievement. You know, we all find these different things that we try to fill that void with. And it's a trope, but it's only a trope because it's real and because we all experience it. But, you know, the more you fill that void, the the bigger it gets because you're not addressing the real problem. And it also, it's, it's this like house of cards, like foundation upon which you build the rest of your life, depending on, you know, when that negative relationship, that negative feedback cycle, when it's implanted or when it really takes root. And, you know, it, that depends on life experiences for some people. But since it was so early for me, it was a part of everything. You know, it was a part of my relationship with music. It was a part of my relationship with my family. It was a part of my romantic relationships. It was a part of my relationship with my job. Like everything that, that I did, at the end of the day, I still had to deal with me, right? And when you make one mistake or you know, you, you, you make, or you make it even bigger mistake. But if you, you know, when you make that one mistake and you berate yourself for hours and hours on end, or you say something stupid in front of somebody and you can't go to sleep because you're just like thinking about like how much that person probably hates you now. And now you're never going to make it. Um, whatever that means. It's like walking in a minefield, you know, like your whole life is basically walking in this emotional minefield where like one misstep, and like you're blown away. 
for me, I, I struggled a lot with anxiety. I struggled a lot with depression. And those were, I mean, they were two huge forces in my life. And it was just this constant struggle. You know, the, we talk about tension and release, right? I, and I talk about tension and release a lot as an artist, a lot as a, as a creative. And it's like 95% tension, 5% release. <laughs> like, you know, uh, and all that tension, when it doesn't have somewhere to go, it just leaks out into all the pieces of your being, you know, into your daily existence because you can't contain it all. You know, either you try to repress it, you try to push it down and pretend like it's not there, in which case it leaks out, or uh, you try to do something with it and it's overwhelming. And so it debilitates you because you don't know how to handle it. So it's this, it's, it becomes this sort of lose-lose situation where no matter what you do, you feel like you're just doomed. And that feeling of doom, that feeling of like hopelessness, you know, like what's the point? Like, why even try? If there's a theme that my life had when I had this relationship with myself, it would be like, again, it would be like the 90, 95% like having that internal conversation all the time. And yet this like 5% of just like that little light of hope that for some reason being like, there's got to be a better way. Like there has to be something better than this. And it being a very much like, you know, two steps forward, one step back process of learning how to love myself. For you, how does that happen? You know, is there a gradual evolution or like so many people, is there a moment and inciting incident experience, which kind of makes you say, oh, wait, like what got me here can't get me there because I don't want to keep feeling this way. It's both. It's really both. You know, it's like the, the idea of like the overnight success. It's like there's 10 years of work that goes into being an overnight success. <laughs> it's like, you know, I did have the sort of like the, I had a, maybe two or three like of the moments over seven or eight years. Uh, and then there was seven or eight years of like intense like work, <laughs> you know? So I would say the three big moments one was when I was 19, I did acid for the first time. And I'm a big proponent of psychedelics. If we use them as, if we treat them as incredibly powerful tools, like a chainsaw, where it's like, you have to be proper, you should be afraid of a chainsaw. Like, but if you know how to use a chainsaw and you're properly trained and you're in the right environment, it's an incredibly powerful tool that can, that can create things and allow you to do things that you simply would not be able to do without it. And I think psychedelics are very similar. They are similarly dangerous if you don't know what you're doing and you're not treating them with care and respect. And they're similarly incredibly beneficial, powerful tools that are, they're game changers if we have the right approach, you know, if we treat them with respect. And again, like some people, it doesn't work for um, because of your brain chemistry, because of a lot of factors and considerations that need to be had. But that is the, the case with any powerful tool, right? So, and despite being a big proponent of psychedelics, I've only done them a few times. You know, I think I've done acid since I was 19, I've probably done it six times and I'm 28 now. I've never had a trip on mushrooms, uh, and I've done ayahuasca once. So 
even though I'm a huge proponent, I would not say I, in terms of number of times that I'm like, you know, uh, shaman level, <laughs> like anything. I, st- I think I'm still very much like a psychedelic baby, but I am highly sensitive. And when I had my first acid trip, it really blew off the sort of doors, you know, really opened the doors of perception. And uh, I realized just how fake I was and just how much of other people's like expectations and desires and wants I was carrying and how little of my own I even knew or what I wanted or what I was doing or why am I here? Like, what's the point? And on that same journey, that's when I came up with this theory of love. Like I call it the cycle of love, which is our whole purpose for being here is to figure out how to best participate in the cycle of love, which is creating, receiving, and and sharing love in all of its different forms. And I, on that trip, I was, I decided the best way I can do that is by being a musician. So that was a big moment because it was a, it was like a wake up call. You know, that was the, that was the, something is deeply wrong, you know, and, and who you thought you were is not who you are. And I think that's one of those moments where, where it was, okay, there, there's a different path. You know, there's a, there's a different path. There's potential. There's, there's something else. Then the second moment, honestly, I don't remember exactly how old I was. I must've been 21 or 22, but I just had this incredibly depressive episode where I, it was like, I just had like this period of maybe three months where I I just got increasingly dissociated from my body and got to a point where like I was like playing with knives and just tracing them over my skin and stuff because I just wanted to feel something. I never cut myself, but I got really weird. And I was just so depressed. I don't even remember why I was so depressed. All I remember is that this heavy sinking feeling like there was absolutely no hope. And it was in that place that I, and I, I was trying things. I, by that point, I'd already started meditating. I'd started journaling and I thought that th- those would be enough. And then I, it got so bad that I was like, okay, I guess I'll go to therapy, which now, you know, I, I think that a part of that is the issue with how we treat mental health in our society, the cultural stigma around it. Like how much better would it be to go to therapy when you're healthy than when you're at the end of your rope, right? When you can do it from a a preventative mindset than a curative mindset. I'm sure the therapist would really love that too. (laughs) Like make their lives a whole lot easier. But, you know, in my dark night of the soul, I, I said, okay, like I, I need help. I can't do this on my own. I need professional help. And I, you know, I'm still with the same therapist that I found from back then. And every now and then I'll just talk to her and I'll be like, do you remember what I was like when you, when you first took me on? And do you remember on our phone call, I explained everything that was happening and you asked me if I had any questions. And I said, please tell me honestly, like, is there any hope for me? And she said, yes. 
And I didn't believe her at the time. You know, I really didn't. But I, I was out of options. You know, I didn't really have any other options. And so, so I went. And of course, we're going to do a bit of a time jump here. But then 27, it's either end of September or early October. I need to look at my calendar. But of 2019, that's when I did my ayahuasca journey, which was not, you know, <laughs> it wasn't, I didn't go to Peru. I didn't do like the legit, you know, ayahuasca journey. I did it through a facilitated experienced person with a bunch of other people who, you know, <laughs> it was at, as at a house in Redondo Beach. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't um, the most legit ayahuasca journey. And yet, that I would say was the real sort of watershed moment where everything changed. And the way that I look back on it, at least, is that all of the work that I had done, all the therapy, all the meditation, all the affirmations, all the books that I'd read about love and how to handle your emotions and all this kind of stuff, which was sort of like things that I knew but didn't really understand necessarily or it it wasn't instinctual for me, for my mind to go to those places it was still incredibly effortfully conscious what the ayahuasca journey allowed me to do was it it crystallized and internalized all that knowledge in a way that fundamentally altered the way like the my relationship with myself and i was able to heal like that deep deep, deep trauma from childhood that I had from all the moving around, from being a third culture kid. And that's why I say it's both, you know, it's the overnight success story, literally in 12 hours <laughs> that also took seven years to prepare for. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I know that was long, but. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's really interesting to sort of like be able to identify those three moments, you know, and, 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 Yes, there's a progression the whole time, but to just say like there were these three catalyzing moments in a really powerful way. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lumi. So listen, we have all had those awkward moments where a BO strikes at the worst possible time. I'm often actually out in nature when I'm exercising, so I don't even notice it when I'm out. And then I walk in the door, kind of start to wrinkle my nose. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's actually me. 
That is why I'm so thankful I discovered Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. This revolutionary product, it was actually invented by an OBGYN who wanted a solution for her patients struggling with private odor. But Lumi doesn't just work, quote, down there. It provides incredible 72-hour protection for your entire body using mandelic acid. I kid you not, this stuff is a game changer. Lumi is safe and effective for pits, for feet, you name it. And as someone who's tried it, I can attest that it seriously works. The fresh scents are just an added bonus. So if you're ready to say goodbye to BO for good, try Lumi Starter Pack. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash, and deodorant wipes and free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with the code GOODLIFE at lumideodorant.com. Don't miss your chance to experience the relief of true full body freshness. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com or just click the link in the show notes and use the code GOODLIFE. Good Life Project is sponsored by Quince. So my wife actually originally introduced me to Quince because she loves their clothing and I have been hooked ever since. I literally lived in their Mongolian cashmere ribbed beanie and pullover hoodie pretty much all winter. And as the weather warms up, I wanted more breathable summer pieces without overpaying. And Quince has just the super high quality items like linen shirts, performance polos, activewear at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the middleman to pass savings to customers. Actually just ordered a new European linen long sleeve button down shirt. Super excited to get that. And I'm always just so amazed at how how they can keep their prices so affordable while the quality remains really high. So if you're looking to upgrade your wardrobe, I highly recommend you try Quince. Go to quince.com GLP for free shipping on your order and a 365-day return. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash GLP to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash GLP or just click the link in the show notes. Trust me, your wardrobe will thank you. You mentioned that the very first one when you were around 19 also was the thing that that led you to say, okay, so I'm going all in on music. Like music is the way that I can bring this, you know, the notion of the circle of love to the world. And also it's a thing that I guess up until that point, it had always been a part of your life, but um, it sounds like you saw it differently. And, and my curiosity is that for so many artists and and certainly a lot in the world of music, music started as more of a coping mechanism than a form of expression mm-hmm. but over the years evolved into like the balance would switch like maybe in the beginning it's 80 20 and then over over a period of years it becomes more you know like 80 percent expression and 20 percent coping or then maybe if a, a lot of musicians have dark years also where they're on substance and then maybe you know like when they drop that it becomes more coping but it's interesting to see how people sort of like very often rely on some form of artistic expression as both coping and expression. Mm-hmm. And for you, you know, it sounds like you, you kind of did that swing um, between the two. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, I think that pendulum continues to swing. Here's the thing. A coping mechanism isn't necessarily good or bad, right? It's just a coping mechanism, but some coping mechanisms are helpful for where you are in your life and they actually help you progress towards whatever your goals are or whatever values, you know, they're in line with your values. Let's say, let's say it that way, that your coping mechanisms 
coping mechanisms are in line with your values. And sometimes your coping mechanisms are not in line with your values. And those are the dangerous ones, right? Where you do something even though it's not who you want to be. And then you get into the cycle of self-hatred again. I think for me, music has always been, well, except for the very first few months, you know, where I was just learning. My initial reasoning for learning music was because I want, you know, my brother told me to. He said, you know, pick up a guitar. He gave me, he gave me a guitar and was like, learn to play this. And I was like, why? He's like, do you want girls to like you? (laughs) Of course, (laughs) of course I do. Uh, So, you know, it starts off in that kind of more shallow place, but very quickly it, it progressed into this place of expression just because I didn't know, you know, I I never taken guitar lessons. I still can't read music. It was very much this just expressive thing, this discovery, this curiosity. And it also started to very quickly become this place where when shitty things happened, very accidentally, I would end up kind of doing my own self-therapy with music. The rub comes from when you do that and then you try to make money from it. Like if I had just kept that and just done music just for myself, you know, just for fun, you know, sort of like journaling, journaling with music, basically. You know, I don't know exactly what would have happened. I don't know what my relationship with it would be like, what, what, it, what it would be like. But I know that once I made the decision to be supporting myself with music, that introduced a whole other array of insecurities and complications and, you know, trying to use this thing that I use for, for self-therapy and for coping and for trying to just get through life and understand what's going on. It just, it, it made it really twisted and really toxic and it made it really, really difficult. And self-love was sort of my way of finding my way out of that, of allowing me to reintegrate my sort of original relationship with music while also trying to support myself while doing it. Yeah. I mean, that is, um, that's a journey that, um, you know, I think anybody who is identifies as a, a creator, an artist, a maker, you know, and where you're primarily, you start out doing it because it's the expression of, of, of your essence. And then, you know, the minute you say, well, how do I get somebody to exchange value for this that will allow me to sustain myself in the world? Right. All of a sudden it can't just be that. And that's a brutally, it's a tension that exists in every, especially performer that I've ever known. Because on the one hand, the fact that people pay you for it is one of the things that allows you to keep it front and center in your life and devote so much time to it. Um, but it's also the very thing that affects the purity of what you want to come through you and to, to bring out into the world. This is why I want to go back to bartering. This is like, I want to go back to a bartering economy. <laughs> yeah. And the music industry also, you know, like the industry itself certainly has gone through its waves and had some major yeah. issues. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I'm curious with you also, um, because so much of your music was sort of related to pain for so many years. When you start to just personally 
come out of the darkness in a way that is more lasting and sustained and, and essential to who you are, like more identity level. Do you get concerned at all that <laughs> the source, like the source fuel for your music is no longer going to be there on a level that would make you happy with it and make it quote good? That is, you know, such a, it, it's such an important question. And I, I also love that you, that you asked it because it's such BS. <laughs> like it's something that I think a lot. Yeah. I absolutely had that concern. Of course, of course. You're like, no, my pain is my superpower. Like I need to be miserable or I'm not going to be able to create, you know? So I need, I need my misery. This is the myth of the tortured artist. And I, I would say that the single best cure for the myth of the tortured artist is reading and going through the book, The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, which I did post ayahuasca. And it was incredibly helpful because first of all, pain is a part of life. You're never going to live a life that doesn't have pain in it. But why restrict yourself to creating only from the place of pain? You can create from anywhere. Anything can be inspiration. And of course, pain is a, honestly, is a really beautiful thing. It teaches us so many things. And especially when we take that pain and turn it into something, that is, I think, one of the most beautiful things that we can do because we take something that hurt us and use it not only to help ourselves, but potentially other people around us. You know, that, that, that is like, it's, I call it emotional judo. It's beautiful, but pain is not the only place that you can write from. And of course, I was scared of that, but, you know, through a lot of exercises, through understanding that being a writer and, and also being a professional is not, is so much more about the process and so much more about just showing up and allowing whatever is there with you that day and learn, like learning how to just communicate that and not being attached to where it comes from. I think the sort of most prolific writers and not just prolific, but healthy, you know, sustainably prolific, I'd call it. Those creators tend not to care about where their inspiration is coming from. They, they tend not to place too much value on, is this coming from pain or is this coming from joy or is this coming from the place that has been pre, you know, selected for quality, but instead they just show up and they allow whatever is happening to really flow through them and also not be that attached to the outcome. That's the beautiful piece of, you know, being a creative is when you can, and I think not just a creative, but really anything that we do. I think the ultimate form of living in terms of being sustainably fulfilled, I'll say, not happy. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is an emotion. It comes and goes. I think the goal of being happy in life is sort of, it's a, it's a trap, you know? But I'll say fulfilled, where you don't have that empty feeling, is learning to love the process and being able to stay curious about and continually falling in love with the process, actively staying in love with it. And if that's the case, you're not too worried about where everything is coming from or where it's going. You know, you're able to be just present with whatever is 
And again, it, it's these tropes, it's these these cliches that we talk about all the time. But you know, cliches are are central to human experience because we if we all experience them. And so whether you call it loving the process or being in the moment or being in flow or you know, there's all these terminologies for this. But I think when you learn that that is the most important thing and you experience the freedom which being in that place brings, you realize that like it's not about your pain. It's not about, it's not really, that's just like maybe a starting point, but it's sort of like the, you know, an idea, ideas are, you know, everywhere. You can, you can pull them from anywhere. It's, it's about the process of execution. That's what really matters. Yeah, no, I, I I love that. And I actually, and I completely agree with it. Um, we had Julie Cameron on the podcast. Um, <laughs> no way. Back. I yeah. I got to give her a massive thank you. <laughs> she Can I tell you, she has had, I mean, when that episode aired, so many people were like, you don't know how much like that one book changed my life. And I need to go listen to that episode like immediately. Yeah, it, it was it was amazing. <laughs> we we were sitting down in her, you know, like in her, her home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. No um, way. And uh, just kind of like going deep into her life. Um, but it is stunning um, how her work has affected millions and millions and millions of people around the world and, and on such a deep level through such a simple set of practices. I, yeah, and I completely agree. You know, I think there, there is that trope about, you know, like you've, you've got to suffer. And I think, like you said, you know, there's no way out of pain in life. There's no way out of suffering in life. It's, it's going to happen along the way. And I think sometimes folks are like, but I need to create more of it. And they actually, you know, intentionally go out and seek because mm. they think there's a, a linear relationship between the amount of pain I suffer and the fuel that I have to create great art. Um, yeah. And it, it's just not true. Like you said, um, you know, when, when you start to sort of emerge from this place and you have a certain amount of success, but the, the, the musical life is always hard. Uh, although the industry is certainly changing and there's so many new ways to make inroads and to kind of like remove gatekeepers and go straight to the people who you would most affect and have them support you. You know, it's interesting because it kind of brings us up to speed to a certain extent. So you and I first met um, actually in this app clubhouse which um still the vast majority of the world doesn't know about and and is not on it's sort of uh i think the easiest way to describe it is it, it's an app that imagine it is the largest event in the history of events and it's going on 24 7 around the world and there are thousands of rooms that you can just walk down the hallway and jump into and see whether it's interesting that could be like live performances panel discussions presentations and it's been interesting because this platform launches last year. A whole bunch of originally sort of like tech industry influencers and insiders jump onto it. And then, you know, now there are, you know, like millions of people on it. And, you know, you're kind of watching and seeing how people are using it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I, I'm, I was a little late to the party. You were there a lot earlier than me. You start this thing called Lullaby Club, you know, which is fascinating because a lot of rooms are out there and they're trying to like, like make a gajillion dollars and do this. And look, there's, there's a place for everybody. You like not judging anyone. Um, I am, but, (laughs) 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 but, but you end up sort of like saying, okay, so 
if everyone's zigging in that direction, how do I zag? And you create this room, which is a nightly room called Lullaby Club. And you can, you know, like anyone can show up. And the first time I show up, I'm like, oh, this is cool. And then as I start to show up more and more, I'm like, oh, there are levels going on here that I would imagine a lot of people in the room don't know about and don't care about. But there's mm. something else going on here. There, there mm. are, you're, you're serving multiple communities. You're being massively intentional about it. And I can like almost feel the gears in your head as the co-founder of this saying, okay, how to create something for people in the room, but as a musician, as an artist, as somebody who's been in the industry, as somebody who sees how hard it is for people to quote, break out and sustain themselves. Um, you know, I reached out to you originally because I was like, I need to know the different layers. I want to know what's really <laughs> happening here. Um, and so that's where I want to go now. Like I, I want to, um, let's do it. I want to know what's really happening under the hood. At totally. Club. You know, it's so funny you, you asked that because it's the one time in my life where there was no machination. <laughs> there was no like gear turning. There was it was, you know, I'm prone to overthinking things. I'm prone to overanalyze. I'm prone to being like, I need to plan out my next move or it won't be successful. And I rambled about being uh, in the process, you know, in the moment for a while earlier in this conversation. And I think what's so beautiful about Lullaby Club is it just really came from that place. You know, I was as surprised, <laughs> I think, as everybody else was that it took off and it, it, you know, it continues to take off and continues to grow in, in the way that it, that it is. And of course, once I recognized it, then I started to become really intentional and be like, okay, there's something really beautiful happening here. You know, how do I respect that? How do I respect like, what's being built here? And also do it in a way that, that is supported by my values. And of course, now the conversation is very different you know, then if you would talk to me about like, well, what is going on at Lullaby Club within the first month or so, where it was just me just getting on an app where when I played music, people responded really well. That was it. You know, it's just like, I play these soft songs at night for people. I take covers. I joke around with people. You know, maybe I speak more gently than uh, the rest of the people on the app just because I want it to be a kind of gentle vibe. But it was really just me following my instincts and just not, not even instincts, just doing what I thought would be fun. Just like really not giving a fuck. <laughs> and, and in that way, Lullaby Club, especially at its beginning, was just a very natural extension of myself. It's sort of like the essence of Axel Mansoor and like who I want to be when I am sharing my music with people. It felt like that was able to be shared in such a pure way. And within the context of like gently soothing somebody to sleep, who I am as a person and who I am as an artist and, and those two things just like clicked in a way that outside of the context of that, I don't think it really has clicked as well. And it's sort of like I've been making the music, but I didn't really have the context. And Clubhouse and you know, even titling it Lullaby Club and all these little context clues, these context sensitive things that create it 
plus the right kind of people being there, you know, the people that would support something like that, the people that want to be involved in something like that. All of these little pieces kind of work together. And that's why I say it worked together in such a crazy, beautiful way that I couldn't have planned it. You know, I, that, like that kind of planning is maybe there are people who can do that, you know, master chess players and things like that. But that is not who I am. I, I am unable to, to do that sophisticated of a level of planning. But at <laughs> yeah. the same time, like in the beginning, I totally get that that's the way it was. Yeah. I love that. I love the organic way that it started. Yeah. But at the same time, something in you does recognize at a certain point, like, oh, oh there's, there's something much bigger. I mean, like thousands of people are showing up every night, like as regulars, there's a community forming. And, you know, now if you show up there, you're likely to find you know, like so many of these people wearing sort of like the, <laughs> the, the blue club hat, hat you know, <laughs> yeah. on, on their avatar, which has become this symbol. It's like an identity. It's like, you know, the, it's like the lullaby club, a handshake. It's a, a visual thing that says, I am, I am a part of this thing, which is, yeah. which is really cool. And so we are making shirts by the way, with the, with the hat. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're also bringing in all these different artists. You're like, and now you have all these artists who are saying, like, I, I want to perform, and basically oh, they're yeah. showing up. And incredible artists from around the world contributing to this thing, and they're they're all doing it, you know, to create this powerful moment together. So, like, as as it starts to evolve, and you start to see like what's really happening here. Yeah, yeah. Um, what does your brain start to think about what's possible? Well, I. Th- you know, one of the big things, and this may, this may sound like overly businessy, especially for somebody who's just like, you know, it was just vibe, man. <laughs> like, um, but it, that is really where it started. But I think I did pretty quickly once it was no longer me. So one of the things that I first realized was, wow, this has the potential to be huge, you know, because there are so many contexts in which this works both on and offline. You know, there's really no limitation to to the number of contexts that it's music, right? And it's like, of course, music works in so many different arenas. But I started to really quickly realize like, okay, if this is going to grow, I can't be the bottleneck. Like this can't be the Axelman Sewer Club. It has to be an abstraction. It has to be bigger than me. It has to involve other people. It has to be this thing that other people who are connected to it can take it and run with it. You know, and and it can feel like as it is as much theirs as it is mine. And so, you know, very intentionally taking steps to be like, this is not about me. Like, yes, I have my moments in it. Yes, I start, yes, I created it. Yes, like it's my baby. But at the same time, I want everybody, I want everybody to feel like we're all raising this baby together. It is not my baby. And the second thing was just from a from a music industry standpoint is the understanding of like wow this has the ability to create or at least like expose a market that i think has been severely underserved and undervalued which is this uh venue of music that is there to soothe people that is there to help them fall asleep like and being a singer-songwriter, you know, coming from that world, singer-songwriters in the world of streaming are incredibly devalued. Like there are 
absolutely incredible singer-songwriters that get completely passed over in the streaming world because that kind of music seems to just not have as much quote-unquote demand. And yet, places like Lullaby Club are showing that there is that kind of demand, there is that fervor, but you just need to create the context for it. And I think that's the really beautiful thing that Lullaby Club is doing is it's showing, you know, we've had conversations with, with like people who are like longtime execs in the, in the industry and they're, you know, they're being like, you know, I never thought something like this could work. You know, nobody seems to really care about this kind of music, but like now Lullaby Club is happening. It's kind of, it's interesting, you know, it's like, oh, people really do want this, but like. There's so many talented singer-songwriters, and even myself, in terms of the music that I've released, you know, I tend to write on an acoustic guitar. I write these very gentle sort of songs, but then you go online and you look at the top 40 and you see like, okay, well, I want to support myself. That means I got to make music with production. That means I got to make music with beats. You know, that means I have to make this kind of music that has this certain kind of dynamic because that is what is being served. That's what people seem to be asking for and the labels are giving to them and et cetera, et cetera. And so you're like, wow, I have to mold my music to fit this shape. And I know that this is not just for me, and, but it's for a lot of the artists that are coming to Lullaby Club. The reason they feel so at home is because they're like, I don't have to change my music. I can do mm. exactly what I wanted to do the whole time and now I'm seeing that there are people who really want to support that in a visceral kind of way that makes it matter. And that, so like I see it as both this sort of cultural phenomenon where people who want to fall asleep to amazing live musicians, the audience gets to win, right? Because they get to have this experience that helps them with their anxiety. It helps them with their depression. It helps them with the, the sense of isolation, especially in COVID, right? That's a win for sure. But then you also get this win for the artists, artists like myself, who for a long time were like, well, if I'm ever going to support myself and if I'm ever going to make money doing this, then I'm going to have to create a certain kind of music. And it's not going to be the kind of music that comes to me so naturally. And it's now creating a space for those artists where it's like, well, damn, like I can just do what I do naturally. And now there's now we're we're proving that there's a market for that. We're proving that there's value there, not just to the artists, but to the industry. And that is really cool, you know. That's really cool. Um. So I think as we grow, my philosophy, and maybe this is because I'm an artist and I'm just being selfish, but <laughs> my philosophy is like Lullaby Club has to be coming from a place of we put artists first in the same way that you started this conversation by being like, we go where we want to go and the audience will follow. I very much feel the same way where it's like, if we go where the artists want to go, if we are led by taking care of artists and giving them an amazing platform and really like making the artists that are in the community feel absolutely supported, then everything else will follow because people will go where the artists go. People will go where these tastemakers go. You know, like we said, artists have the power to shift and shape culture. So if you take care of them, 
if you make sure that they're feeling good and that they're empowered, my belief is that everything else will fall into place. And that's what I want to create. And I, especially, I think it's important that I am an artist. I know the struggle. Like I know, I know what that's yeah. like. And I, I don't want to lose sight of that as this thing grows. And I think the, the piece of me that like the tension and release that I'm finding right now is like my main goal with Lullaby Club for myself is freedom. You know, I don't need to make a lot of money. I just want to make enough money that I can support myself and continue to do projects that I, I want to be a part of and, you know, just have the freedom to do dope shit with dope people. Like that's, that's, my, that's my goal. But f- especially since we're at the beginning and we're not making a lot of money and I'm hypersensitive about the idea of like potentially taking advantage of artists or, you know, getting work for free or things like that is figuring out the balance between, okay, well, Lullaby Club needs money to be able to support itself. And how do we also make sure that we're supporting artists and figuring out what that means? You know, it's all shades of gray and, and figuring things out in shades of gray is hard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and what's interesting also, I mean, about all of this is this is all taking place on a tech platform, an app that exists on your mobile device that is also only available to one type of device right now and is still in beta, you know? So you've got, I think the latest, while we're recording this, like five to 10 million people on the app, you know, it's entirely conceivable that a year from now, 18 months from now, that could be hundreds of millions of people once it emerges out. Or at the same time, like so many apps that are like massive out of the gate, it can entirely go away. Oh, yeah. And it could just get swallowed up by the, by the other big tech competitors, you know, like Facebook's doing their own, Spotify's doing their own. Uh, obviously, Twitter Spaces is already in beta and out. I think social audio as a, pla- you know, as a new type of social media platform is definitely here to stay. Um, obviously, I, for my own reasons, I hope Clubhouse continues. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but it's almost like, it's like no matter what happens like you. And I think we've talked about this. I believe social audio is here to stay too. I don't know what the platforms are going to look like in three years, let alone five years or let alone a year. But, but what's fascinating is that no matter what happens with the platform there, nobody knows you've proven something, you've proven a concept, like you have a proof of concept on this thing that gives you a certain amount of power to then no matter what happens with the platform, decide like you you can then go to different players different platforms different entities or build your own in a way where you have a lot more confidence or and then other people who might get behind it would have a lot more confidence so it's almost like there's a lot of uncertainty about the platforms but what i think is so fascinating is that the proof of concept remains <laughs> lullaby club is certain <laughs> yeah <laughs> You know, that's, that's a very encouraging uh, perspective, man. I hadn't thought of it that way. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to that. I, that. That is a gift that I will accept gladly and humbly. Yeah. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. You, um, I don't know if it'll still be by the time we air this, but, um, when the average person looks at apps on their phone, they have these little icons, they tap the, tap the icon and then magically the app opens. Clubhouse does this interesting thing where they choose people who are members and they put their profiles as the icon. And for a hot minute now, your profile has been the icon and they tend to rotate them. So, you know, like a decent chance, even by the time we air this, that your, your face won't be on that icon anymore. You know, mm-hmm. you are, as we speak in the middle of Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame, <laughs> you know, you're, and, and maybe this becomes a launch pad for something that sustains and builds, but I got to imagine you're a thoughtful enough person and a realistic enough person to also be thinking this may go away or, you know, like I, or I have this window now I have this 15 minutes now, right? Your face literally sits on millions of people's phones, if not hundreds. I'm on John Mayer's phone. I'm on Elon Musk's phone. Justin Bieber's phone now. (laughs) So, so I got to imagine, like, there's a part of you which says this is so cool. You know, like, there's a part of you, you know, which wants to take a screenshot of that and blow it up into a poster. At least, maybe I would probably want to do that and send it (laughs) to my mom. Um, But there's probably also a part of you which is saying, um, it's really important for me to understand not just the opportunity, but the sense of responsibility and is perpetually asking yourself, what do I do with this 15 minutes? Mm-hmm. That was the first question I asked myself. Like I went into it being, well, and also to, to that end of blowing it up on a poster, I'm actually, uh, by the time this airs, uh, I will have already dropped an NFT of my face. <laughs> so that comes out actually in two days. Um, so, you know, that, that is a part of this idea of like, how do I, 
what do I want to do with this? Right. And, and there's a couple goals, right? There's from the business side and especially my manager's side, you know, his main aim has been, and of course I'm with him on this, but his, his main aim has been like, yes, this is 15 minutes of fame. So how do we take what's happening and translate it into momentum? You know? So it's not like, as soon as this is taken down, as soon as you're no longer the icon, like nobody gives a shit about you anymore. And that's where he's coming from. Right. And so we've been doing a lot to that effect. On an emotional and personal perspective, I wanted to ask myself, how do I look back on this in 10, 15 years and think I didn't waste this? You know? And that was a very difficult question for me to answer at first because the inclination was, well, that means I just got to promote myself as much as possible and just go in and, and work super, super, super hard and just make sure that as many people as possible know who I am, right? And I did three days of that and I felt fucking miserable. <laughs> and I was like, this is the worst. Like, I hate this. And then I was like, this is not working. I need to figure out some other way of approaching this. And then maybe, you know, five days from there, hit me in the shower, as most of my ideas usually do, um, that I just had this thought, which is, what if instead of making it about me, I use this time to direct the spotlight onto other people, onto other causes and things that I care about and use this power, yeah, just to, just to shine a light onto other people, you know, either people who I'm meeting who I think are doing cool things or my friends, you know, people who I care about. And as soon as I made that switch, that sense of, am I going to be proud of this when I look back on it was a much easier answer, you know? And then it, it became like, if I just do one good deed per day, you know, then I can feel good about this. And a good deed is just me making it not about me. If I can make this, if I can make me being icon, not about me, then I can look back on this with pride. And I've done that, you know? I, I know that I'm going to be able to look back on this and think, yeah, it definitely served me. But a part of the reason that I can look back on it and be fulfilled by the fact that it served me is because I was able to, you know, transfer that momentum, not just to myself, but to, uh, but to people who I care about. And there's been a couple of, of examples of me doing that, which I didn't, you know, it's funny because I was, I don't want to like list them out because then it seems like I did it for the recognition. So I'll just bring up one that was incredibly important to me. Um, my manager, his name's Brian, Brian Mooney. And as of now, uh, Brian's dad is still looking for a kidney because he has kidney disease and he's, he's on dialysis and you know, his prospects are pretty bad if he doesn't get a kidney. And Brian and his brother have been looking for about six months for a donor, you know, no luck. They put up, they put up a website, like they even bought out a billboard in, uh, I, I think in Portland, which is where his dad is, you know, kidneyforlarry.com, uh, you know, just trying to get people nothing. And this was about two weeks ago. And I, you know, I thought that I was going to be icon for minimum two weeks, maximum two, four weeks, maximum four weeks. So I definitely thought it was going to be a sprint and I treated it like that. And it's been a marathon. <laughs> so that's been a learning lesson. 
But at the time, I said, you know what, Brian, I have no idea, obviously, how long this is going to last, that I'm the icon. Of course, there's just people just do come to things that I do because of that. Why don't we just make a room called Brian's dad needs a kidney and just see what happens? You know, and Brian's kind of a private person. You know, he doesn't really put his private life out there. And so he was a little reluctant and I kind of had to push him into it. And he's like, well, actually, this Friday is my dad's birthday. I'm like, this is perfect. Like, we got to do it. And so Friday comes around, set up the room and going into it, Brian's kind of like, are you really? Yeah, maybe we shouldn't do this. And I'm like, dude, let's spend 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Nobody comes. It's not a big deal. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen, though? Like, what do we what do you have to lose? You know, what do we have to lose? Nothing. Right. We'll set up the room. Whatever. We set up the room and a whole bunch of really beautiful stuff happens, which, you know, talk about another time, I guess. But basically within 45 minutes, two people ended up offering Brian their kidneys. And the way that so one of them ended up not working out because it turns out that his kidney, he like he's not uh, viable. But one guy who is in L.A., And this is the crazy story that I want to talk about just really quickly. This guy's name is Danny. I did a a room like two days before just because, you know, everybody wants to talk to me. Everybody's saying, oh, come talk in our room. Let's interview you, et cetera, et cetera. And I went to this room and I kind of had a bad feeling about it. And then I did the room and I was like, oh, that was a waste of my time. Like, I just didn't really want to do it. It was just like not my vibe. It was like the people who are you know, not really my vibe. It was like that room. And I walked away from that room kind of being like, ah, God, that was kind of a waste of time. But this guy, Danny, emails me afterwards or he DMs me and then I give him my email and he emails me and Brian and he's just like, hey, my name's Danny. Like, I know all these crazy TikTokers. Like, let's let's collab in some sort of way. But the way that he wrote the email was like better than most. And so I was like, all right, you know, this guy seems nice. Let's talk about it. And then two days later, it's Friday, and the same guy, Danny, shows up in the room. And by this point, like, some really beautiful things have happened. Like, kidney donors have, have spoken up. Kidney receivers have spoken up, like, shared their story. There's been these really beautiful moments of connection and just gratitude and, like, wow, what an amazing gift to both give and receive. And Danny comes up, and I'm like, oh, it's that guy. It's that guy, Danny. And he chimes in, and he's like, hey, you know, I don't want to bring down the vibe. Uh, Because I know things are really positive, but I actually lost my younger brother to kidney disease. And he didn't say when, but it was clear that it had been pretty recent. I think it was probably in the last year or two. And Danny's a young dude. I think he's like 24 or 25. So his brother couldn't have been that old, right? And he goes, you know, I know the fear of losing somebody in this situation. And I know the pain of actually losing somebody in this situation. And so I want to give you my kidney. And everyone in the room is just blown away. Obviously. You know, like what an incredibly beautiful thing. That happened within 45 minutes of us opening this room. And there's so many beautiful little synchronicities at play here, you know, from me being icon and just being like, let's just try this room out. Let's just see what happens to 
because I'm Icon, uh, ending up in this random room that I didn't like. And I was like, what a waste of my time. And then this guy finding me because of that room. And then him showing up in this other room. And us having this conversation to him literally offering something that to Brian's dad that could save his life. And that Brian and his brother have been searching for for like six months with nothing. And this all happened in 45 minutes. That's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty breathtaking. It, it is. And what is also amazing is that he wasn't just talking. Literally the next day, he filled out the form to see if he's a match with, with uh, Brian's dad. And now we're just waiting on the results, you know? And God, I hope it works out. Mm, that is amazing. Um, you know, and to be in a position to, um, yeah, to, to, to be able to facilitate things like that. And then also just like that, those, those multiple serendipities, you know, where you serendipities, just sort of like, yeah. you never know, you just never know. Um, and another kind of interesting serendipity, like, you know, beyond you sort of making the decision to say, well, let me use this time to shine the light on others, to help as many other people as humanly possible. One night, a couple of weeks ago in Lullaby Club, somebody shows up. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned his, you invoked his name earlier, right? The musicians and the songwriter um, and stand in for Dead & Co for a couple of years now, John Mayer, legendary legendary guy, somebody who has had a massive impact on you, your life and of course. music, especially and, and on so many different levels. And also probably a lot of people don't know in my mind, one of the best living blues guitarists of our generation. I mean, Absolutely. just stunning musician. I log on to Lullaby Club as, as I often do, you know, like kind of late at night and I see your avatar in there and then right next to you, is John Mayer. And then I hear him talking and then I hear him pick up his guitar and he's like serenading everybody in lullaby club. He was serenading me. Including you, <laughs> right. Who's <laughs> like literally like in the virtual seat next to him this whole time. Yeah. Which is like quite a full circle moment. Oh, absolutely. I can die. <laughs> I can, I can pass away. There's enough people that love Lullaby Club. It'll continue without me. Like, I don't really need to be here anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, it's a literal dream come true. I don't, mm. I don't, I didn't think I would ever say that. Yeah, it was a beautiful moment. So it feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation. Also. <laughs> so hanging out here in this container of a good life project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life. What comes up? To live in accordance with your values, to live in alignment with your values, and to love unapologetically. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, safe bet you'll also love the conversation that we had with the extraordinary singer Lisa Fisher who, in addition to her own breakout hits, spent years touring and recording with everyone from Luther Vandross to the Rolling Stones. You'll find a link to Lisa's episode in the show notes. And even if you don't listen now, be sure to click and download so it's ready to play when you're on the go. And of course, if you haven't already done so, 
Be sure to follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share the Good Life Project love with friends. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.